Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Thank you, Francesco, for this very kind in introduction and also for the invitation to give the talk today. I see the normal effect. Uh, the first one, two, three rows are completely empty because everybody is afraid that I would come too close to you. But because of the recording, I have been constrained to the platform. So don't get worried. You can also move forward if you want. Okay. So, Sesame, a source of light in the Middle East. But before I talk about Sesame, let me give you an, a glimpse of what science in principle should do. Well, the role of science is quite obvious. To innovate, to discover, and then to publish, and also to share. That's the scientific part. But also, and, and no science is good science if, if you don't have competition. It also competes, but at the same time, it collaborates. I think science needs competition and collaboration at the same time. And the LHC experiments are the best example of the, of the collaboration, but also of the competition, because everybody wants to have the result first. But on the other hand, you need to work together. So this is why I want to give a few words to CERN first. CERN, I think, is a marvel of international collaboration. Francesco just pointed it out, and I will repeat it once more. However, with our big accelerators at CERN, we try to explore the early universe. So it's a different uh, scientific aspect compared to SESAMI, which I will cover later. So CERN was founded in 1954 by 12 European states. <clears throat> and now you have to go back these 65, more than 65 years, into 1949, because there the first ideas of CERN came up. 1949, Europe was in ruins. And then you needed a handful of visionary scientists and a handful of visionary diplomats to get together and to think how to bring Europe in science out of the ruins. <clears throat> and the idea was, you cannot do it as a single country, as an individual country. You have to join forces. That means you have to cross the borders, the boundaries of the different countries. And only by working together, you can come up with a fantastic scientific endeavor. And that's how CERN, uh, the CERN idea was born in 1949. It took only five years to found CERN, to create CERN. That would never happen again today. But at that time, it was possible. So it's really science for peace. At that time, it was 12 European states. Today, there are 22 member states. <clears throat> and when you look on the member states here, you see, if you have good eyes, there's one member state, which is Israel, which is outside the normal definition of Europe. And that was due to the fact that in 2010, we decided to change the, the meaning of the E in CERN from Europe to everywhere. That means any nation independent of the geographical location could become member of CERN. And you see, we have associate member states also from India, and we have Pakistan and other European countries. CERN is a large laboratory. It has nearly 4,000 staff and uh, other paid personnel and more than 13,000 scientific users. 
So it's a huge institution where you can only succeed with collaboration and at the same time, as I said, competition. <clears throat> and this is an important point here. CERN is a European intergovernmental organization, but it's globally used. It's an infrastructure which belongs to all its members. Yeah? Everybody who pays at CERN its contribution is a stakeholder. And I think it's maybe the example of what Europe and the partner outside Europe can achieve when one is working together. And that is true since more than 60 years. <clears throat> 1954, the first session of CERN Council, the European reconstruction started. 98, uh, 1980, the East, East meets the West, and today the LHC brings together more than 10,000, more than 8,000 scientists and some hundred nationalities. And the key message here from the very beginning, it's peaceful cooperation at the forefront of science, independent of any cultural and national differences. And it still works very well today, where we have the global collaboration. <clears throat> and that gives you a glimpse where the scientific users of CERN are coming from. And that's a, a count on, the, on July 2017. And you see, essentially from all over the world, from all continents, the scientific users are coming to CERN. <clears throat> and that's the age distribution of these scientific users. And you see, the ballpark are the young people. That shows, first of all, it's attractive. And secondly, it's a booming field with young people. And it's a fantastic way to, again, create network for these young people for the future. So they know many people from all over the world. In the, they become friends and they can work together. <clears throat> so, summary, CERN was conceived in the late 40s, so 49, with two aims. The first one, to enable the construction of a facility for, at that time, nuclear. This is why CERN has the N for nuclear. At that time, nuclear, and today it's particle physics research beyond the means of individual nations, beyond the means of individual members. And at that, time was, that brings the second aim, namely to foster cooperation between peoples recently in conflict. Again, very important at the end of the 40s, at the beginning of the 50s. <clears throat> so these are examples of bridges between these peoples built by CERN or at CERN. I'm from Germany, and I can tell you I'm, what I have been told is that the, it was the first international intergovernmental organization that Germany joined after the World War II, and at that time even on probation. But from people who have witnessed that, who were sitting at the table, they told me we felt accepted for the first time after the World War. So that was already fantastic. It was hosting, CERN was hosting the first post-World War II meetings between German and Israeli physicists, and that happened at CERN. There was a, still a very strong collaboration between CERN and Russia, or at that time Soviet Union, at the height of the Cold War, and we, the doors were kept open and established trust, and it was a model for the later US-Russian collaboration. 
In the late 70s, when China was still closed, scientific contacts between Europe and China were pioneered, first at DAISY in Hamburg and later at CERN, and the Nobel laureate Sam Ting from MIT got the backing of the then president Deng Xiaoping. There was a special event in 1985 when the US, uh, the, the Soviet Union-US uh, arms negotiations in Geneva were stalled. And the US delegation asked the CERN DG at that time to arrange a dinner at CERN for Russian and American scientific advisors. And that obviously facilitated the subsequent breakthrough. Um, I think it's the special atmosphere on neutral ground, on scientific ground. You are not in, 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 you know you are on a friendly ground. And then you can discuss more openly and uh, that, that makes such breakthroughs. In addition, CERN had always an open door policy for East European countries during the Cold War. And this allowed them quickly to join CERN following the fall of the Berlin Wall as an expression of their European identity. So again, <clears throat> you see, science can break walls at many fronts if one has the right people there who are willing to do that and who are willing to accept that. <clears throat> now, CERN, as Francesco told you, uses powerful particle microscopes. These are accelerators. And they, ac they accelerate particles, protons, or electrons to investigate the microcosm and at the same time the early universe by colliding metaparticles at the moment at CERN essentially protons, but beforehand at the lab accelerator it was electrons, by colliding these metaparticles with other particles, either with themselves, so you collide protons with protons, or you, th you shoot the protons onto fixed targets on material in order to investigate the properties of the microcosm. And in these collisions, you come also very, very close to the, early uni to the Big Bang. You can investigate what happened at the early universe. <clears throat> and that diagram shows you the amount of accelerators CERN has from very small ones medium ones, big ones, and very big ones. And then all these, ex all these accelerators experiments are performed by the users, by more than 13,000 scientific users coming from all over the world. <coughs> of course, the biggest one is the famous Large Hadron Collider, the LHC project, which is, I put a question mark in because I ne I'm never sure, but it, which is certainly one of the largest scientific instruments ever built. It's a particle, accel uh, particle accelerator of 27 kilometers circumference. It collides protons, these are the nuclei of the, of the hydrogen atoms, to reproduce the conditions a millionth of a millionth of a second after the birth of the universe. So we come as close as a millionth of a millionth of a second. To the early universe, to the Big Bang. And these collisions happen around 40 million times a second. And what happens in these collisions is registered in four huge experiments uh, around the ring where the protons are colliding. Now, to design and to construct such a project, you need many thousands of technicians, of engineers and physicists from all over the world from many, many different disciplines. 
And they had to develop new technologies and to develop new engineering concepts over decades. So they had to work and they still have to work over decades together. The question, of course, is always, does this lead to success? And you know, it has led to success. It has led, at least as a first discovery, to the discovery of the so-called Higgs boson in 2012, five years ago. And I think everybody here in the audience has heard about that. Is it correct? Or is there somebody who reveals that he or she has not heard about that? No. And the amazing thing is, this is a sort of esoteric science. It's very difficult. But still, five years after the discovery, very often one is asked to give still presentations about the Higgs boson. One is still asked questions about the Higgs boson. That means it captures the fascination of the people. And that's what science has to do. And we have to get more of this into the general public. Now, one year later, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to these two theorists who independently had proposed such a particle, proposed such a mechanism, but they could only be awarded the Nobel Prize after CERN had confirmed it through the discovery, and that's in green here, through the discovery of the predicted fundamental particle by the ATLAS and CMS experiments at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. It's a very, very nice quote inside this uh, uh, prize award. So, that was CERN. And now, go 40 years later and think, what else can you do? Can you do something similar? In a similar spirit, create a facility, an institute, which should, maybe on a lower, on a smaller scale, do similar things as CERN. And that was the idea of SESAME. So it was conceived in the late 90s, so 50 years later than CERN, again with two aims. But here is one important difference. To enable the construction of a facility, but not for a more or less single science area, but for a broad range of scientific research, beyond the means, again, of individual members. Because the idea of Sesame, as you will see, is for the Middle East. And if you want to, to encourage scientists to work at such a facility, you have to have a broad range of science, a broad range of research. But the second aim also of this facility was and is to foster cooperation between peoples. So you see the big similarities between CERN on the one hand and Sesame on the other hand. And both were founded under the uh, uh, auspices of, of uh, UNESCO. So UNESCO is, so to speak, the godfather of CERN, and UNESCO is the godfather of Sesame. But how to achieve the broad range of scientific research? CERN is doing nuclear and particle physics, so it's concentrating on physics. Now, a broad range of scientific research, you can do it in the way that instead of using particle accelerators, so metaparticles, like protons and electrons, you, you, you are using light, the photons, instead of metaparticles. By using light, you can cover the electromagnetic spectrum and use the electromagnetic spectrum, which is shown here. I don't think one sees very easily the, the pointer here, but if you look where 
The electromagnetic spectrum starts, of course, has of course a visible part, and the visible part is very small. That's this yellow band here. This is the infrared, this is the ultraviolet. When you have to go to an X-ray machine, it's somewhere here at the higher energies. You see here at the bottom, there's the energy of the photons in electron volts. So these are KEV, kilo electron volt uh, X-ray machines. Here is a visible, as I said, infrared light, microwaves, if you have a microwave oven, radar, and then you go into the radio wave. So that's the electromagnetic spectrum. So you select part of the spectrum with a synchrotron radiation. And you see this synchrotron radiation, which, are, which is photons, covers a large range of the spectrum from milli-electron volt, very low in the infrared, up to kilo-electron volt beyond X-ray machines. You can cover everything depending on the energy of the machine which you are building. So this gives you then a very versatile instrument, a very flexible instrument to do science in many different areas. And that's the key to grow different science populations in different countries. So what is synchrotron radiation? It's relatively easy. Particle physicists don't like synchrotron radiation because any, any particle which you accelerate, any charged particle which you accelerate, for example in a circular machine, is emitting electromagnetic radiation. That means it's losing energy which you have to feed into the, into the accelerator again. And you lose this energy in a tangential way to the accelerating, uh, to the collider, to the, uh, to the, to the um, circular machine. So any electro, this electromagnetic radiation is emitted when these charged particles are subject to an acceleration perpendicular to their velocity, for example, by bending magnets, because you have to accelerate them in such a way that they stay on the circular path. And then you have photons which come off this circular machine. Now, and you can use these photons, and you see again here this spectrum, I have put it here again, um, which you saw before. Um, this is the photon energy, so here is the X-ray machines, for example, and here is the infrared. And you can choose, depending on the energy of the electron machine, energy of the particles which are running in, in the circular machine, you can reach to higher and higher energies. The higher your, your ener electron energy, the higher also afterwards the, the photon energy. You see, Sesame will have two, has two and a half GeV uh, energy of the electrons, and that gives you up to 20 keV photon energy of uh, the photons from the synchrotron radiation. But all of it goes down to the very low energies also. So what is the, the beauty of synchrotron radiation then? First of all, it has a broad spectrum, as I have shown from microwaves to hard X-rays. And the users can then select the energy or the wavelengths they need for their individual specific experiment. You can have a very high flux, high intensity photon beams, which allow very fast, very rapid experiments, or in other, if you want to use it on very weakly scattering uh, crystals, for example, you don't need you need a very high uh, flux for weakly scattering crystals because the, uh, uh, you don't get many data out of it, so you need a high flux. 
high brilliance. So you, you can collimate the photon beam very well, which is generated with a very small divergence and very small size of the source. You can polarize uh, the photons, either linearly or, or circular, and you can have a pulse time structure. You can choose pulse lengths down to tens of picoseconds, or you can have essentially uh, continuous light. So, but the, the charm of having a very fast pulse structure is the resolution of processes on very short timescales, which is again important for different applications. You can see this advantage of synchrotron orientation opens a field very wide in different researches. You can do more. You can insert special devices into the machine. You, take, you don't take perfect circles. You do, in parts of the machine, you have straight sections. In these straight sections, you insert so-called wigglers or ondulators. These are just magnets which are, polar, which are having different orientations. So north-south, north-south, south-north, etc. So you, bring, you get the beam wiggling along according to the magnetic field. And when it's wiggling, then of course, again, because it's accelerated perpendicular to its uh, um, motion, it emits light. And with these wigglers and with these undulators, you can produce very intense radiation, which is concentrated then in a, well done, when it's well done, in a very narrow energy band and it very collimated within the orbit plane of the electrons. So you get a narrow energy band, not the wide one which you normally have, a very narrow energy band, and you get it collimated very well. So depending on the design of these undulators, you can again produce special beam lines for particular fields of research. So, and that's the development of synchrotron radiation facilities of light sources. And you see the, the increasing sophistication down, uh, along, line, along the, the, the first to third generation. The first generation started, I would say, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, when it was just a parasitic use on nuclear physics machines. The second generation was then already dedicated machines, which were only there for synchrotron radiation. And they used the radiation from the bending magnets, but they also can already use wigglers in order to increase the flux. And usually the beam lines had were there for multi-purposes, many purposes. The third generation machines are optimized, first of all, for high brilliance, smaller source sizes, and a high current, so higher flux. And these highly performing insertion devices matched to the beam line needs are introduced, and these are the undulators. So with these undulators, you can develop beam lines for specific scientific use. Sesame is a third generation synchrotron light source. So it's one of the more, will be one of the more modern ones. And it stands for, now I finally can reveal what it stands for. It stands for synchrotron light for experimental science and applications in the Middle East. These are the members of Sesame. You see Cyprus, Egypt, Iran, Israel, Jordan, Pakistan, 
Palestinian Authority and Turkey. That's an interesting mixture. That's an inter interesting mixture. And it can work because people are talking science. People are talking research. And that's the main point. Of course, members, more members are welcome. Sesame doesn't have to be restricted only to these eight members. Others are welcome. There are quite a few more observers ranging from Brazil and Canada to Japan, Kuwait, and the UK and the USA. Now, what, what I observe is, <clears throat> observers don't have a vote in the governance structure, but observers are such countries, or can be such countries, should be such countries or institutions, which have already contributed to Sesame, for example, by in-kind contributions or also by some uh, yeah, by some, giving some resources, either in manpower or in money. The location of Sesame is in Jordan. It's a little bit north, northwest of Amman. You see here the home of Sesame is in Alan, which is, I think, between 30 and 50 kilometers northeast of Amman. And that gives you, again, a glimpse of the different research fields synchrotron radiation can cover. And I think one can here really say it's a crosstalk among disciplines. Chemistry, arts, and you can look at paintings, for example, the originals and what is below it. Physics, material science, environmental science, energy science, medicine, and archaeology. Archaeology is certainly something which is also in particular interesting for the region of the Middle East, which has a huge, uh, uh, fantastic uh, history, and one can do archaeological investigations on probes, for example. In total, there are some 60 light sources in the world, but Sesame is the first and up to now the only one in the Middle East. And I think I said it already, but broad programs make synchrotron light sources ideal facilities for building scientific capacity. I think, and that's important, you should involve as many science, uh, as many research fields as possible in using such an institution when you build it newly in the region of the Middle East. It's also, again, like at CERN, clear that international collaboration is the obvious way for countries with relatively small scientific communities, and that's the case for quite a few of the, of the members, and limited or limited science budgets, again, the case for quite a few of these uh, members, to build a synchrotron light source. So, again, like in the, four, in the 50s with CERN, it's obvious you can only do it when you take to get together your resources, when you get together the people and the means to do it beyond uh, an individual country. I don't think any of the countries would, would have been able to build such an institution alone, maybe one or two exceptions, but they can build it together and then they will also use it together. And the using means Sesame is a user facility. 
It is not a teaching facility. It's not a university. It's a user facility. It's an institution where scientists will typically go a few times per year for a few days or weeks to carry out their experiments at the respective beamline which fits their needs. And they will do this not only alone, they will do this in collaboration with scientists from other institutions and hopefully from other members, from other countries. So again, the hope is that here teams are formed from different members, from institutions from different members of SESAMI. Again, a very similar way of proceeding uh, as we CERN, except for the fact that here, for that region, you better have a very broad spectrum of scientific programs compared to CERN, which was concentrating on nuclear and particle physics. Now, a little bit of history. Essentially, you can call it a convergence of two ideas. The first idea, that goes even much earlier than uh, the 90s, was from Abdul Salam, the Nobel Prize winner, to build a light source in the Middle East. And he came up with this idea already in the early 80s. He, he was really a visionary. And also to foster the scientific projects that cross divides between cultures. Then, 1997, the original proposal was to take the old Berlin synchrotron called Bessie 1, which has a 0.8 GeV, had 0.8 GeV energy, to dismantle it in Berlin because I didn't want it anymore, and to move it to the Middle East as a basis for this new international organization, which was modeled or is modeled on CERN. Two years later, an interim council was established, an oversight body with an international advisory committee. Then, 2004, people finally realized <clears throat> to take an old machine apart and build it somewhere else again might not attract the best scientists because it's an old machine. There was a reason that one didn't use it anymore in Berlin. So, then there was a decision to build a new machine, 2.5 GV instead of 0.8 GV, still using the injector and the booster, that means the start of the, uh, of the, of the whole uh, facility from Bessie. And by this way, when you build a new machine, you could go to a competitive third generation facility. So then you become really scientifically competitive and interesting. But groundbreaking had started already a year before, and the building to house this ring was finished 2008. During that time, already a vigorous training program was started and is still ongoing, and the potential user community, community is growing, was growing at the time, and is still growing. Finally, the first beam circulated January this year, 2017, and the facility was opened by His Majesty King Abdullah II on May 16th of this year. So that's a brief, a little bit of history. Now a few phases to that. To, first to the convergence of the two ideas. To build this light source in the Middle East, up to Salam. He must have, I have never met him, but he must have been really a visionary. He was not only a great, great scientist, but he, he was a visionary. And he founded the International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, which has as one of its aims 
to foster collaboration and to bring education and, and training and science to uh, Islam's, uh, to Muslim countries and to the Middle East. And to foster projects that cross divides. It took then a few years, 1995, the first meeting in, in, in Egypt, when the then Minister of Education of Egypt and Elias Rabunovic from Hebrew University and also member of the MS, MESC, which is a Middle East Scientific Cooperation Group, uh, brought together and took an official stand in favor of an Arab-Israeli cooperation. So that was 1995. And you see here one of the main figures at the time, Sergio Fubini, Fubini who was the chair of this MESC uh, group, uh, talking at this meeting. And then the dream of these two came together two years later, 1997, when Gus Foss, at that time uh, uh, leader of the, of the uh, or he was the leader of the accelerator group at DESE in Hamburg, and Hermann Winnig from Slack, they suggested to use this 0.8 GV Berlin Synchrotron, the BCI one, in the Middle East as a basis of a new international organization. And you can talk about it as much as you want. It will only start once you have a seat. And the seat was the BESI-1 being moved from Berlin to the Middle East. Then a former DG of CERN, Herwig Schopper, he took the idea to the DG of UNESCO, who then in 99, again two years later, convened a meeting of potentially interested parties at UNESCO at the headquarters in, in Paris, and they established this interim council. One year later, the site in Jordan was chosen. So why was Jordan chosen? Well, you need a country, a member of Sesame, who is able to, how, to, uh, to house such a, a facility that means has enough means, enough resources, because the host country has to put in a lot of resources in order to support it, and who is also open to all acceptable scientists from all the members of SESAMI and beyond, of course. 2002, two years later, discussions started, is this old machine good enough? And 2004, the decision was taken to build this new 2.5 GV ring, still using the injector and booster of Bessie in order to make this competitive third generation facility. However, that is easier said than done. Because in order to put an old machine together, you don't need much uh, money. In order to build a new ring, you need a little bit more money. You need resources, and not only the funding, you also need different type of manpower. So a few countries then gave voluntary uh, contributions, a few members gave voluntary contributions in order to allow the construction of this new 2.5 GV ring. And not only the members, but also the European Commission. The European Commission also gave money in order to build this new ring. They gave it through, to CERN in order to help in managing, in, in designing the 2.5 GV ring in order to manage the, uh, the procurement, the testing, and the installation of it. 
So CERN and SESAME are very closely connected through this help uh, to build this 2.5 GV ring. So not everything goes smooth, and I, I show you just one thing which um, was a surprise, and that was in November 2013. You see on the top right, you see Sesame in November 2013. You see the house, which uh, the, the building which houses the 2.5 GeV synchrotron. But then in December 2013, the roof collapsed. There was an unprecedented snowfall. I think it even snowed in Cairo at that time, which I think is even more unusual than to snow in Amman. The weight of the accumulated ice and slash exceeded the design specifications. And you see that something is wrong here. That's normally uh, the rails of a crane, which should be straight. So the roof collapsed under the load of the snow. So this created, to some extent, in a jokey way, an open sesame. The open on the top, you see, um, that should have been the roof, and you see how much it is bent. However, you can see the concrete shielding of the machine elements were already there, was already there. And so the injector and the booster, the old Bessy 1 parts, could still be commissioned under the open sky while the new roof was under construction. And you see now there's a new roof because you see the color has changed. I hope that now also the design is different so that it can stand more of the snow. But it's amazing, the new roof was finally in place in March 2015, but beforehand, a few months earlier, September 2014, the beam was stored in that booster from Bessie and brought to the full energy of the Bessie part, namely the 0.8 GeV, the 800 MeV. So that was done without a functioning roof at the time. And it was then already the highest energy accelerator in the Middle East. <clears throat> so how is the inside of Sesame looking? Well, you, could, you saw it already before and here. You can see it very well, the different shape, the, the, the ring structure, but with the different angles here for the exit. And that's in the... In the figure here, you have here the shielding which houses the electron ring, where the electrons are accelerated. And then they produce a synchrotron light, and you put this light out here through these corners. The intense beam of the light is, put, is exiting through the ports in this shielding. And the boost I was talking about and the source of the electrons is sitting here. So that's a pre-acceleration which goes to 0.8 GeV. And then it's injected into the ring, brought up to the 2.5 GeV. And when you have the 2.5 GeV, you take out the light, you open these, these ports, these windows, and give it, bring it out into the experimental stations. So that gives you an idea of the 16 sectors. This is the first of these 16 sectors which form the uh, 2.5 GeV electron ring of the main storage ring. And this is the first of the 16 sectors at CERN, March 2015. And I think it's a fantastic example of international collaboration. Spain to produce quadrupoles, the green ones. 
France, some coils, UK, the red dipoles, Germany, vacuum chamber, Turkey, quadrupole coils, Pakistan, sextopoles, Cyprus, also sextopoles, and in addition, other countries like Italy, Switzerland and Israel, some more components. So you see, this is a fantastic and excellent example of international collaboration on a very small part of a machine, which then is repeated 16 times. And I can, I, I'm really proud to announce that all, that is all the parts which come, for example, from Pakistan or from Cyprus or from Turkey, exceeded the specifications by a large amount, some of them by a factor 10. So they are much better than the specifications. So that's very promising for the performance of the machine. And it also shows that countries which are relatively new in the accelerator and on, at the accelerator front can produce very functional, very good pieces. So the installation was then completed in November 2016, one and a half years later, because you had to install 16 of these dipoles, 16 girders on which they rest, and then quadrupoles, sextopoles, vacuum chambers, ion pumps, kilometer water pipes, 12 kilometers of cable. And that photo gives you an impression of how the machine looks like. What you just saw on the previous slide was this part here from these sexto and quadrupoles, the dipole, and this side of sextopoles and quadrupoles. And 16 of these are installed. And then the ring is closed. The success was that then on 11th of January 2017, and one has to remember that then in the, for the history, at 1812, the first beam was circulated in the sesame main ring. So I would say that was the first light at the tunnel of a 20 years uh, journey through, from a dream to reality. And you see this spot here shows the light which you see, which the electrons produce once they turn or make the, the full turn. And that's the proud team, some of the people who commissioned uh, the accelerator. They were at that time led by the technical director from Germany in that case, after successfully circulating Sesame's first beam. So that was really a milestone this year. And then it took three months to reach full energy 27th of April. Uh, of, yes, 27th of April. So 11th of January, they circulate with 800 MeV, the energy which comes out of the booster. Three months later, you are up at the full energy at two and a half GeV. Again, another milestone. <clears throat> that allowed an opening on 16th of May 27 by King Abdullah II of Jordan. And you see here some proud people participating in the, <clears throat> in the opening. You see here the king. You see here uh, Her Royal Highness, the princess, Sumaya. Irina, Irina, Irina Bokova from the UNESCO. And this is the then Director General, uh, Chris Llewellyn Smith, who was one of the leading figures during that time. And I took over on the, that's me, I think. I took over uh, the job of uh, Chris Llewellyn Smith on 17th of May of this year. <clears throat> so 
the three presidents of the, of the Sesame Council, of the governing board of Sesame, are ex-directors general of CERN. Okay, now you know which qualification you have to go through in order to become president of the Sesame Council. So the first one was Helwig Schopper, second one Chris Llewellyn-Smith, and the third one is me. So, <clears throat> but at that time, one had the ring, one had the machine at full energy, of course not yet at full intensity, low intensity, because you start step by step in order not to, to, to destroy anything. But then you, have, you want to do science. And to do science, you need the synchrotron light and not only the electrons. Yeah, it's an electron orbit. So you need beam lines which focus the light on the samples which the scientists want to study. And each beam line can support several experiments in series or in parallel. And generically, they look like this. You have the electron orbit in the machine. And then at some, at some place where you have the port, you exit the, uh, uh, the photons, for example, x-rays when it's high energy. Then you have optics. And with this optics, you focus it on the sample which you want to study. And the versatility of the machine is shown here. You can um, change energy, momentum. You can use energy. You can use momentum. You can use measure position like in the imaging. You can do dynamics, as I mentioned at the beginning, time resolving. If you have very fast uh, pulses, you can resolve times on this pulse uh, timing. Again, spectroscopy, scattering. You have a lot of different means in order to do your science. <clears throat> so that is a generic uh, experiment. The layout of a sesame beamline looks a little bit more complicated. <clears throat> you have again here the electron ring. You see again, this is one of the 16 parts, which is repeated, of course, 16 times. And then you have the, at the ports here or here, you exit the light the synchrotron light, and this is what is the optical element, which is, of course, different if you use infrared or if you use so very low energy or if, or if, you, if you use X-rays, that means high energy. So here you shape the photon beam, and here you do your measurement. You have the huts, experimental huts, where you put your probes, your samples, in order to investigate them. So the ring is there, so now you need the beam lines. And the scientific program is about to begin, I hope, end of this year. Now, SESAMI can house in total 25 of these beamlines. Of course, again, you start low with only a few beamlines. And two are at present being commissioned. That's number one and two. One is an X-ray, high energy. You see um, really, up to, really at the highest end of the photon spectrum, which uh, SESAMI can deliver. It is based on parts from, given from the European uh, uh, Synchrotron Radiation Facility in Grenoble and also from the German Institute. But it also new, uses new, new focusing optics, new things, new development, and novel detectors. And this one is at present being connected. And I was hoping to show today the first light. Has he sent it? No. OK, not yet. Um, I'm, we were hoping to have today, this evening, for this talk, the to show the first photons at the end of the beam line. 
Okay, what, is, what, what we don't have today, we have tomorrow. Okay, so. The other one, the other beam line, which is at present being connected, which is a completely new one, is at the low end of the spectrum, so in the infrared, yeah, which is coming just, again, both types from the bending magnet. So one is at the high end, and the other one is at the low end of the energy spectrum. <clears throat> On the other two, I will say a few words later. Okay, again, you see here the high end and the low end of the spectrum. So going first to the high end of the spectrum, because that will be the first one to deliver uh, results. This is how such a focusing uh, of the of the uh, in, in the focusing element in the beamline looks like. So much more complicated than a normal lens. So its components, which were given by the uh, ESIF in Grenoble, for the following, you can up apply it for basic material science, for life science, inventor, environmental science, on a very small scale, nano and micrometer scale. Examples are new materials, improving catalysts for petrochemical industry, for example, bonding structure uh, determination, identification of chemical composition of fossils, and, for example, to look at valuable paintings in a non-invasive manner to, to see what is below the painting. And you sometimes have quite some surprises how often the old painters, the old fantastic well-known painters have used uh, the same uh, painting again, the same material again, just painting a new one on top of the old one. And it will be equipped with a novel detector, which is better than existing technology. So I think this is a beamline which promises very much. <clears throat> Important is this example. These are examples of work which have started at other synchrotrons in the world, but which is expected to continue at Sesame. For example, absorption and also mobility of heavy metals in soils where people are living, for example, in the vicinity of Jordan, in the Jordan River, or the Yarmouk River, um, to track pollution in the air and soil in Arab regions, and to look on metal storage and the metal balance in wheat. And you see the seeds exposed to increasing cadmium concentrations. Uh, that's a control sample if you, how it changes depending on the increased concentration of cadmium. See, already, well, without synchrotron radiation, you see already the change in the, in, in the seeds. However, you want to know how much cadmium is in there, and for that you need the uh, synchrotron radiation. So that shows the strategy of SESAME. You start experiments at other synchrotron laboratories because you want to train the community and to accumulate expertise and then you transfer this, these experiments and the expertise to Sesame. So you can build up new groups, training outside, and then come back to Sesame. A similar thing is done with the infrared beam line, where you can look on surface science, material science, biochemistry. You can look at, again, archaeological uh, uh, research, geology, cell biology biomedical diagnosis, and environmental science. Again, very versatile, this beamline. 
science began there already in 2014, not at a different, at another synchrotron, but with an infrared microscope, which uses a thermal source, because infrared is uh, low energy, you can use a thermal source, to be replaced then by the synchrotron radiation end of this year, beginning of next year. And for example, you can study breast cancer, and one of the ladies here has led this study, and they do look at, as I said, at breast cancer. They also use this microscope to study the effect of, med of medical medicinal oil, and that's already a published, uh, uh, published article. And they want to, to continue medical work to include study of a special genotype of hepatitis, which is prevalent, of, obviously, in the Middle East. So again, very versatile, but here, to a large extent, also concentrating on medical applications. Now, when you have two beam lines, you make a call for proposals for research at these first two beam lines, and that's the result of this call zero. More than 50 proposals have been submitted with more than 150 registered users. And you see the countries where the users come from and how many proposals from this country uh, has been submitted to either the X-ray beam line on the left or the infrared beam line. And you see in total 55. And when you look, it, it reflects the interest of the, of the institutions, of the scientific communities in the different country. Turkey has concentrated on the, on the X-ray one. Pakistan has more on the X-ray, but also quite a few on the infrared. Jordan is equal. Then you have Iran, which is, again, essentially equal. Egypt, also very close between the two. And then you see also Cyprus has submitted. What you also see is that there are other countries like uh, Colombia, France, Italy, Kenya, etc. These are people from the region who live there or work at the institutes there who want to perform research at Sesame in the region. So that's one of the goals, of course, to bring people back outside, from outside the region back into the region to do their research here. Okay, this one were the two beam lines. Now, the other two, which are already financed, but they need still some construction before they can be connected. One is on material science, and this one uses a wickler in order to enhance the flux. So these two are using only the bending magnet. This one uses also a wickler in the machine. And then the macromolecular crystallography uh, uh, beam line will use an in-vacuum undulator, so that makes it then a third-generation facility. That's a completely new beam line, which is supported by the Jordanian Scientific Research Support Fund. And both are, again, at the high end of the energy of the, spect of the spectrum and of the energy which Sesame can deliver. Just to give you a glimpse on the material science beam line will be investigation of novel materials for energy storage, like hydrogen fuel cells for vehicles, where you want to, to, to see how you can uh, store it inside a solid material, which, and then it is released by heating the solid solution when required. But you have to understand the correlation between the hosting material and the hydrogen storage and in order to de de design that. So it will be the first sesame beam line equipped with a Wickler, 
which enhances the brightness of the synchrotron light. And therefore, you reduce the time needed to make measurements. And the MX, the macromolecular crystallography beamline, will look at mechanisms of protein and nucleic acids at molecular level, provide guidelines for developing, for example, new drugs, new therapies. And just to remind you that proton protein crystallography studies at synchrotrons have contributed to the award of five Nobel Prizes. The first one in 97, the latest one five years ago. So I think it really provides insights into functional mechanisms of biological macromolecules, etc., etc. And in addition, there's something very important that in the early stages there will be strong collaborations with laboratories in the region, like the Jordan University, the Israel Structure, Structural Proteonomics Center. And so again, hopefully, through the research at this beamline, you bring again different centers and universities from the different members together at, in one project. I have here some quotes from users of uh, Sesame. So start with the red one. The scientific merit of Sesame is obvious and a synchrotron here is going to be a boost for the region. It will bring the possibility to join hands between countries. Collaborating on scientific problems for all mankind is something that I think is extremely positive, and this is why I think Sesame is important. So it's one of the users. Another user says, we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so we need to be ready to use Sesame. So I'm waiting for Sesame because I will have more opportunity to get beam time here than at most of the other facilities. The third one here, here we not only share science together, but also culture. I think that's very important. And he or she hopes to be one of the first users to work at Sesame. Okay, I'm very optimistic about the future of Sesame for the region. So these are just three selected quotes from scientific users. Now these users of Sesame will mostly based in universities and research institutes in the Middle East, as I showed you the list of the proposals, and neighboring regions. They will visit the laboratory a few times per year to carry out their experiments. And we all hope that they will do it often in collaboration with scientists from other countries, from other members, where they will be exposed to the highest scientific standards in the stimulating environment of an international collaboration. So, and of course, the, all the staff of Sesame will help to ensure the success of work of both experienced and also inexperienced users. And there's a generous grant from one of the foundations, from the Lounsbury Foundation, which will cover expenses of users from, from the Sesame members uh, for the next two years when they want to carry out their experiments. And this training has a lot of uh, external support, not only the Lounsbury Foundation, also some scientific uh, societies are giving, giving money. This training continues in users' meetings, in schools, workshops, as their fellowships, visits to operating light sources in order to gain experience, all to build technical and scientific capacity in the region. I have here two photos, one from the first users' meeting on the left in Amman, and one from the 10th from the user meeting on the right-hand side, and the users' meetings are nowadays attended by more, many more than 100 
potential users who prepare for doing their science at the facility. And of course, there's also training for accelerator experts who returned from outside the region to the Middle East in order to train and to also give their expertise to younger people. So these are members of the Sesame Accelerator Group 10 years ago. So the ongoing support for training from the International Atomic Energy Agency and others will be further strengthened by another funding uh, scheme of the European Union, the Open Sesame Project. So you see who participates in order to support Sesame from non-members. You see um, ESIF in France, um, Spain, now Cyprus is member, Germany, Italy, UK, France, Switzerland, France. So a lot of non-member institutions are supporting the project uh, together with the European Commission. It started in January this year. It's a three years project. <clears throat> and the key objectives are train Sesame staff in the accelerator part, namely storage ring and beamline. Then in the beamline instrumentation technology, in research techniques, and also, which is important for an international institution, for administration for optimal use of modern light sources. Second aim is to build up human capacity in the Middle East and in the neighboring regions to optimally make use of Sesame's infrastructure. Now you have it, now you should use it. And train staff and the user community in public outreach and communications. It's very important to speak a language for the staff and for the user community to bring over their enthusiasm and to bring over the, the science which they are doing. And therefore, that will then support Sesame and its stakeholders in building awareness and demonstrating the impact to assure a longer-term success. Because now we, have this, we are at the start of the, of the use of Sesame. Now we have a long-term future and we have a long-term success, hopefully. There's one thing which is ex very special for Sesame. That's powering of Sesame. <clears throat> when it's fully operational, that means 5,000 hours per year running, Sesame will use 10 gigawatt, gigawatt, gigawatt hours per year. And the price for the power is presently $375 per megawatt hour. So the sustainability of the project needs a solar power plant. And the conditions near Amman are good. They are not as good as here. Here they are maybe even better, but they are good, in, good enough near, near Amman. So there's an agreement to provide power for Sesame from a solar power point, and that has been reached with the Jordan Atomic Energy Commission, where, we, where Sesame will build a solar power plant and feed the power into the grid of, uh, of Jordan and the site is also made available by Jordan. And therefore, the government, in order to, to build that, the government of Jordan has agreed to provide the funding. And they use funding from the European Commission. So it's again another contribution, strong contribution from the European Commission for the carbon-free, carbon emission reduction in neighborhood countries. So the EU is giving money to reduce the carbon footprint 
And this is a very good example of reducing the carbon footprint of that institute. Sesame will be therefore the world's first accelerator powered entirely by renewable energy. The contract has been signed a few days ago. Construction will start soon. So I hope that next year the solar power plant will be in operation and therefore powering of Sesame will not have any negative effect on the budget. On the so what is beyond science in the near future? Well, Sesame is about to build a guest house funded by Italy, which will be available in next year. There's already a small temporary guest house, but this will be a larger one. And then we are dreaming to have a conference center because when Sesame is not in operation, it will be able to house meetings on other topics in surroundings which, surroundings which are secure and easily accessible. And beyond that, well, the dream is that this will lead to other joint facilities and other joint collaborations. The buildings, for example, can then be used for high-quality Middle East scientific meetings. So Sesame could develop into a sort of scientific hub in the Middle East. Maybe in a similar way to CERN. And for this, I want to quote the last paragraph of the editorial in The Guardian, the British newspaper, in March 2015, when CERN was turning on the LHC again. So the first sentence is on the, on the research of CERN. But then just read the blue. The blue says, has spun off colossal technological and computing rewards. And the red one is very important. The point is that Europe is working together in a thrilling intellectual exploration that can have no conceivable commercial or political payoff, but could in some still intangible way enlighten all humankind. In these otherwise murderous and mean-spirited times, that is something to salute. I think you can replace some of the words by Sesame if you have the dream that this could happen in a similar way. And I think it's still true what is written here two years later. So this is something which I personally dream of, that Sesame could fulfill a similar role as CERN. So the role of CERN and Sesame is to innovate, to discover, to publish and share, and bring the world together. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.